this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leszczycki as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 10 The discovery of a really great gift was always an exhilarating experience to Leszczycki. He was, on these occasions, inclined to go into long disquisitions on the subject of artists and the traditions of music. He would describe the different technical equipments of players, whether unknown to the world or famous. One could do such and such a thing well, another had great individuality and phrasing, another could never relax enough. He quoted Madame Marchese, who declared that a certain kind of person could never draw a long breath in public. They breathe naturally only when they are alone, she said. These talks of his, which proceeded apparently from reveries and ever-recurring pictures in his mind, were exceedingly instructive, and he made the pictures so clear that they were easily remembered. Paul Goldschmidt's character was worrying Leszczycki not a little at this time. The young man had individuality, but seemed to lack the ability to make his gifts shine forth. As Leszczycki expressed it, he lacked the glorification of his qualities. He was due for military service the next year, so Leszczycki set about to secure his exemption and succeeded in doing so. He believed he saw every reason for Goldschmidt's becoming a great pianist and thought it was decidedly necessary for him to have uninterrupted years of study. He sent him to me for preparation, but warned me constantly against leniency and haste. He told me how every teacher must beware of talented pupils, that both teacher and pupil often went astray by not being practical enough and he thought that one could not be too practical in the training of the hand and in studying technique. Talented people were like children, he said, and a teacher must express himself clearly and distinctly the first time, as children and the talented remember the first word spoken and the first efforts of the teacher to express his idea. They do not need to be told twice. He summed up the requisites for a preparation for lessons with him as the application of a very few sound and practical principles to the hand of the pupil. He was very much pleased that without any evidence of method I had been able to prepare two or three pupils in Vienna to play for him, who had succeeded in qualifying for frequent lessons and had been able to understand him in these lessons. If one was ready for lessons from Leszczycki, one could usually get them. He was even willing, on occasions, to read over a composition with a pupil who had been prepared technically with the idea of improving the pupil's method of studying by noting the workings of his mind. He was keen in such matters, 
but he did not approve of studying technique at first in pieces. After scales and etudes had been mastered, it was a different thing. One's technique could then be maintained by reviewing the difficult passages that one found in pieces, after which the incessant repetition of scales and etudes might be discontinued. He considered it very unadvisable to attempt to learn pieces that were technically too difficult, as one too often lost all sense of the beauty of the music by playing in false tempos until the ear had become accustomed to the wrong interpretation. To those who repeated difficult passages fifty times, or practiced with a timepiece or a metronome, he would say, "'Where is your ear? Gone forever, probably.' Keep your metronome to bark at you sometimes like a watchdog if you are not sure of yourself in tempos or cannot retain them in your ear. Forget about your watch and concentrate your mind on your own personal mechanism. The dampers of the instrument you are going to play will also take care of themselves if your ear is good enough. And talented pupils, he said, are easily distracted. They ask you many questions, but their own minds lead them astray. Paul Goldschmidt is talented enough, but he has just as much to learn as some others. He was indeed more talented than the pupils I had already prepared for Leschetitsky in the spring before going to Ischl, but they had been more practical themselves, and had easily and simply studied exactly as they were directed. The first time that I met Paul Goldschmidt, he seized both my hands and said, If you will give me technique, Miss Newcomb, I shall be the greatest pianist in the world. Many talented people came to study with Leschetitsky, but never had I heard of one of them making such a statement. Paderewski had been in no hurry, it was said, to learn pieces, and had confined his studying for six months to technique. Paula Shalit, they said, practiced Cherny etudes all day long for months and kept her mind free from all distractions of beautiful music. She had taught herself to play these etudes in all tempos and with all shades of expression so that they at last sounded more like beautiful pieces. Leschetitsky had asked her to play one of them once in the class. So beautifully did she play it in every respect. Another of the pupils, little Michio Horchovsky, it was said, ran home as soon as his mind grasped one fundamental of technique or tone and incorporated it into every piece that he knew, turning it over in his philosophical little great brain until every possibility was grasped. I repeated Paul Goldschmidt's statement to Leschetitsky, who did not like it at all, and technique at once became the basis of disagreement between them. To me, Leschetitsky frequently said, Poor boy! Such belief in his own talent may bring him the greatest unhappiness. However, Leschetitsky seemed more touched by Goldschmidt's case than annoyed with him, and had great faith in his powers. He cautioned me about his frail hand, and gave me many directions in teaching him, frequently inquiring about his progress. While Leschetitsky always insisted that he himself had no method, 
He on one occasion seemed to be thinking over his words, for he added, If I had a method, it would be based upon the mental delineation of a chord. Many times he would ask the pupil to make a list of all the chords, as well as of groups of notes, to make a picture of them in his mind's eye, and to study the picture, at the same time shaping the hand according to the picture, before touching the keys. He called this the physiognomy of the hand. Some pupils found this very easy, while to others it seemed curiously difficult. To one American in Ischel, Leschetizky spoke of this as his method and advised him to take a few lessons at once of his American assistant, who happened to be there at the time. This pupil's prompt refusal to study with an American may possibly have led Leschetizky to make the remark that Americans were very quick to grasp this point of technique. At any rate, I have heard him say once or twice that Americans had a talent for visualizing. Regarding the subject of memorizing, Leschetizky had indeed a method, and Miss Annette Hulla, one of his English pupils, has given a most perfect interpretation of this method in one chapter of her book, Living Masters in Music. It rather perplexed Leschetizky that sometimes Americans did not want to study with me, and it amused him very much to hear me say that I could understand that they did not feel like coming to Europe to study with an American. This was the reason that at first most of my pupils were Europeans. They had no such contempt for the ability of Americans. Behind their backs, however, Leschetizky was tireless in his efforts to make me worthy of the position in which he had placed me, and he did not intend to make it easy for me either. One day he presented me with a long list of compositions and asked if I was sure I knew every one of them. He said they were pieces every teacher ought to know. There was a list of pieces for children also, mostly old-fashioned, humorous little compositions. He thought children should not play grown-up pieces or play like grown-ups and should not attempt pieces with emotion. He wanted me to play the concert piece of Faber at the first class meeting in the autumn, and from now on, he said, you must not strike a wrong note. Don't take me too literally, he went on. There are some who think you are too inexperienced to teach. I shall tell them to substitute the word modern for inexperienced. I'm going to send you the little boy, he said, mentioning one of the most talented pupils in his class, for a few lessons. I will tell you what to teach him, for it is an intricate little piece of technique that takes time, but I have an object in sending him to you. It is to make those two or three Americans ashamed of themselves who find it so difficult to come to Europe to study with an American. There are no mysteries in technique, Leschetizky often remarked. The mysteries and secrets come when you begin to play dynamically and rhythmically. When once you listen to your own playing as if you were listening to someone else, and find yourself unhappy and dissatisfied, then it is that your real study begins. But even in Leschetizky's opinion, 
the difficulties which certain pupils experienced in working out technical problems seemed to be due to a combination of traits or qualities that could almost be called peculiar to certain nations or nationalities. For example, one of his assistants declared that no American knew the value of the short note following a dotted note, and that she had never known an American who could give the short note its exact value in relation to the notes around it. This seemed on first thought to be absurd. However, it really was characteristic of us to be technically proficient and able to play perfectly in time, while the quality of listening and memorizing sounds was more or less lacking. In all my study with Leszczycki, and in all my experience in taking pupils to him and hearing others' lessons, I do not think there was any technical point that gave him so much trouble and annoyance as this one of the real value of the short note, a sixteenth after a dotted eighth, for instance, coming before an accent. There seemed to be no end of difficulty in this one little motive, relaxing, contracting the muscles again just in time, preparation of the next group, and, most of all, rhythm, which meant listening. I shall never forget that in one of my own earlier lessons, all playing was suspended for the sake of one note, which, according to Leszczycki, I could not play correctly. When time came for this lesson, I began to have a painful premonition of my difficulty. This was in the first two or three bars of the Nocturne in G major of Rubinstein. What was the matter with that E at the end of the second bar? I tried again and again to play it, as he played it and wanted it, but at repetition my hand would stiffen at the wrong time, and the tone would come too soon or too late, or too loud or too soft. The lesson had come to a standstill. I was convinced that the fault was not that I did not judge correctly the length of tone F-sharp before the E, for I flattered myself that I knew by now how to listen to the vibration and length of tone. After each failure, the master would throw up his hands in despair or disgust, or sink back in his chair, flushing with impatience. On the verge of despair, I remembered the fate of some of his pupils, who, for lesser crimes, had simply been turned out of the house. It was characteristic of Leszczycki, however, that he became all the more interested if he saw that the pupil was trying doggedly to overcome a difficulty. His whole attitude of mind would change, and he would bring to bear upon the problem a complete concentration of mind and all the resources of his ingenuity. Time did not count with him then. He only became more and more determined to succeed in solving the problem. On this occasion, after probably half an hour, the situation became decidedly interesting. It seemed to me that he must be going to send me away forever, even if I should finally play that phrase as he wished it played. Instead, he walked to the end of the room and seated himself there at a distance to listen to my attempts at an E that he could finally call correct. After a while, there came the well-known smile on his face, which meant that he had discovered where the difficulty lay. "'But I am not going to tell you,' he said. 
It is your business to find where it is. He sat there comfortably for another half hour, smiling and often laughing at me until I discovered a simple remedy that was beyond all the rules of touch and technique. I had really been observing a rule, and my hand would not obey this rule. Well then, according to Leschetitsky, the rule for me was wrong. But generally Americans were in too much of a hurry to listen to tones in the sense that Leschetitsky used the word listen. And this, I believe, accounted for the statement of one of his assistants that no American could give the exact value of the little note in connection with the long ones around it. It was characteristic of Europeans coming to study with Leschetitsky that they could do this apparently simple thing. And when an American could pass over such a pitfall to suit Leschetitsky's keen ear, it was almost a matter of congratulation to both pupil and assistant. In speaking of a delighted American pupil, Jane Scottford, who had been studying with him two years, Leschetitsky remarked, A mass of yellow hair hides those little American ears, but they are surely there and quite as good as some of the big uncovered European ears. But if we had generally to be taught to listen, I think Leschetitsky found us quick to understand when he talked of the mental delineation of a chord. His principle was that one should not strike a note or a chord without thinking of and visualizing, or sometimes even saying, the next one. And all of his assistants made this the basis of their teaching of technique. When one spoke of exercises to Leschetitsky, he smiled and counseled working the fingers up and down until they were tired on a book or table out of consideration for the neighbors. When one asked what he meant by listening that seemed so obviously simple, he would tell you to try first taking one sound, either a tone of an instrument or a tone of voice or a knock on the door or a word in a language one did not know and try to repeat this sound exactly with long pauses between so that no sound was produced for the second time but always for the first time, as one would have to do before an audience. You must remember, he said, that before an audience, the chance for the second time never comes. In the shading of lines of phrase, he would tell you to look at pictures and see how many shades there existed in one color. He was perfectly certain, moreover, that half the time of studying could be saved if one learned the motion of phrases by walking freely around the room. He often repeated, too, that a crescendo and diminuendo made a circle, so why not make a picture in your mind of lines in circles, and in this way have done with everlasting markings of crescendos and diminuendos? Back in Vienna again, he began the first lessons with pupils who had prepared for him during the summer. His lessons began usually in November, and Paul Goldschmidt was to have one of the first on Leschetitsky's return. He did not seem desirous of having me present at his lesson, and for two or three days I heard nothing about it. 
finally Leshetitsky sent for me, and as we were drinking tea or coffee in the dining room, he began to talk about the disappointments to be encountered in teaching, that among other things, every teacher, including himself, had to have the disagreeable experience of losing a good pupil. My heart sank. Was he preparing me for some kind of a blow? At last he explained that Paul Goldschmidt was disappointed with his first lesson and with his preparation for it, but did not want to tell me so himself. His lesson had been a failure, he considered, and Leshetitsky could not understand his feeling at all. At the same time, he agreed with me that Goldschmidt should prepare further with Frau Bray or Fräulein Walla Hansen or Fräulein Prentner if he cared to do so. Very soon afterward, Goldschmidt paid me a visit of apology. I assured him of my good will and told him I could understand his doubt of an assistant as inexperienced as I was. He stopped me, exclaiming that he had at first thought exactly that, but he had since been to Frau Bray, who said she could not help him either. I cannot understand at all, he said, why I should not have had a brilliant lesson with Leshetitsky if my technique was good. How is it possible, he said, that one cannot please him entirely and do exactly as he wants one to do if one has the technique to do it? I will not believe, he continued, that I have not the greatest talent in the world, and yet my lesson was a failure. Nothing really made any impression upon him, and I cannot get the tones that he gets from the piano. I can't play at all as he played, and I don't know why. Did you ever hear one who plays as he plays? I asked. I ought to be able to, he answered, and if I cannot have success myself, then I must know the reason why. Leshetitsky did not live to know the unhappy ending of Paul Goldschmidt's career. After studying several years with Leshetitsky, he went to Berlin as a finished artist and played a great deal in public. He made a name for himself all over the continent, and many people loved to hear him play. There was great refinement in his playing, and also great emotion and poetry, but much less of the quality by some called temperament. Many people profited also by his instruction. He had inspiration and great talent, and was a lovable and interesting young man, but he imagined himself to be a failure, and this tortured him. He fancied he had not met with deserved success in Frankfurt, his native town. Brooding upon this fancied slight unbalanced his mind, so his friend said, and on the way from Berlin to Frankfurt he took his own life by throwing himself from a moving train. Since Goldschmidt's death, I have often recalled the remark that Leschetizky made in Ischel, poor boy. What unhappiness such a faith in his own talents may bring him. I think Leshetitsky called it a mistake to wish for anything from the public that was not given spontaneously, and he felt rather sorry than otherwise for those people who could not accept with good grace whatever came to them. He considered the public as a whole a very good judge and thought that one could learn a great deal by putting oneself before the public. He loved the public himself, and liked to be a part of it. 
Someone remarked that although Leshetitsky constituted the whole public at the classes at his own house, as a member of the real public he changed into a friend. Certain it is that in an audience he was the greatest inspiration to the performer. An interesting little story was related by some Viennese gentlemen who had come across Leschetizky in the gallery of the Musikverein Saal, where they had taken tickets for a concert at which one of Leschetizky's pupils was to appear in two numbers. Young students were often asked to assist in this way at big concerts before they had actually made their first appearances as artists. The pupil was a young man whom Leschetizky had at first considered very talented, but as time went on this pupil did not develop his talent as the teacher had expected. He had been a keen disappointment to the master, but was just beginning to play in public. At this particular concert he was greeted with a great deal of applause and had to repeat two of his pieces. As the gentlemen in the gallery looked around, they saw Leschetizky in the far corner with his face turned to the wall and weeping. There was no mistake, he was weeping. One of them who knew the master went quietly over to him and told him how proud he must be of his pupil's playing. No, said Leschetizky, he should have been far greater. He will never play better than he is playing just now. He is playing really too well tonight, but it will not last. Suddenly there was a break in the music. The player stopped and began again, and still could not get himself out of the difficulty. Leschetizky's eyes were dried in an instant. But that is not one of his faults, he exclaimed. That is bad luck. I must try to save him now from being too miserable. While the player was striking more wrong chords and making a bad finish, Leschetizky was on his way to the first floor and hurrying to the artist's room. Others in the audience, including the gentlemen in the gallery, also went back to speak to the concert-giver after the concert and saw Leschetizky with his hand on the shoulder of his pupil, making light of his breakdown, cheerfully recalling similar instances in the careers of great artists and telling stories about them. One of them, he said, had had the resourcefulness to strike loudly on the piano and angrily leave the stage, calling for a tuner, saying he would not continue until that note had been tuned. The tuner came and the artist in the meantime took his notes and refreshed his memory. Another had risen from the piano and, after a wrathful speech charging some imaginary person in the audience with disturbing him, had abruptly left the stage for a sufficient period to bring back the lost notes. These and other stories Leschetizky told to the people who gathered in the artist's room where he had made an atmosphere of friendliness and success. Leschetizky liked to be very near his pupil during a recital. Between numbers he talked incessantly about the pieces to follow, making useful suggestions with regard to changes in tempo and tone. He might even propose a change in general interpretation to suit the temper of an audience, the acoustic conditions, etc. He would never advise changing the actual numbers on the program, this he considered bad taste, 
but he would often advise repetition of parts or omitting repetitions. He would make such suggestions as the following. Your last piece was rather too loud. Play the next pianissimo. Don't declaim this next melody. Make it more lyric in singing. Be as pompous as you like in that next. They need a little waking up. As one came off the stage, he would whisper, Bow a little more the next time. You were not friendly enough when they were enthusiastic. Wait until the end to be so proud. There sits a critic over there to the right, who expects to see you obliged to play slower when you come to that difficult passage. Take your time now with the phrases that come before, so that you will be rested. Then let go and disappoint him. I wouldn't pause after that first movement tonight. You will have applause if you do, and it may spoil your quiet mood for the second movement. It might break the thread. Hold the pedal a little longer, and then go straight on. You will have to put more tune into the scherzo, because the piano is a dull one. Make the runs more brilliant than you ever have before. Also, throw in an extra top note at the end of the broken chords. Play the nocturne very slowly tonight. Your program needs something dreamy that you haven't yet put into it. There was often a steady fire of advice like this during a program. He thought the public should stimulate a performer to be daring and to introduce these variations according to his feeling. You say one of two things as you stand before an audience. Either, I love you all so much that I will enjoy myself and be free, or, I despise you all so much that I don't care at all what I do. There is no middle ground unless you are satisfied not to distinguish yourself. Leshetitsky was always delighted to discover adaptability in these things, and had the greatest admiration for presence of mind under all circumstances. One of his American pupils was playing at a concert in Switzerland when the electric lights went out just as she was beginning the cadenza of her concerto. She was not in the least confused and finished the concerto in total darkness. As the orchestra was about to play again, the lights came on. This incident delighted Leshetitsky, who often spoke enthusiastically of this pupil's self-control. I once had the rare and curious experience of going shopping with Leshetitsky. Early in the morning I received from him one of the little pink pneumatic cards of the Vienna Postal Service, asking me if I could spend the morning with him. At nine o'clock he was at my door. You can't imagine the surprise I had yesterday, he said. A letter came from Russia, from one of the teachers in a small place, asking me if I would hear his pupil play the one who is giving the concert tonight. Of course, I could hear her play, and did. Such a surprise, he repeated. After all, he continued, there is no reputation gained in anything that isn't deserved. This teacher one hears about from people who know, but the joke is, here is a girl that no one knows who plays well, not to say beautifully. We must do something for her. There will probably be only a handful of people tonight, and she is a real artist. She has something unusual in her playing. Perhaps it could be expressed this way. She brings her themes to a development that
that is like the unfolding or blossoming out of flowers. I can only think of big, luscious roses when she plays. She is not handsome. She must have some good clothes, which now she has not, and we must get as many people to go tonight as we can. I am going to buy a dress for her. You can spend some money, too, he went on enthusiastically. Buy some flowers and a few tickets that you can give away to people who wouldn't go otherwise, but we must all be there. Now let's go and see what we can buy her. Just think of that teacher, he said. If the pupil plays tonight half as well as she played for me, then he has had a great success. He is not known enough. There is one in Berlin, too, who is not known enough in this world, but it is his own fault. His pupils play well. Consequently, he is a good teacher, but he makes mistakes himself. He dislikes people and distrusts them, and he shows it. He came out on the stage once in Berlin looking like a thief. This one in Russia makes mistakes. He hasn't any courage. He doesn't want to be famous. And so Leshetisky went on as we made our way to a little shop in the center of the city. He decided I was about the same height and size as the girl who was going to play, so proposed that I should try on a certain pretty gray evening dress he had seen there. A nice woman came forward and instantly produced a dress that Leshetitsky had examined the night before. The woman said it was too dark the evening before for the professor to decide upon the dress, but she was sure that he would come back, and she was glad that there was someone to try it on. Leshetitsky took out his shabby old pocketbook and paid several large bills for this frock which he had chosen and had it folded in a small parcel to take with him. Now, said he, let us get some more things. You can drop them all at her hotel, and she will never know who sent them. But they will make her happy, you may be sure, for she told me she had only the shabbiest clothes for the concert, and she had spent all her money coming here to play. Now what else can we buy? She should have some silk stockings, shouldn't she? he asked. After some trouble and many untyings of the parcel to match the color of the dress, we discovered some gray stockings. Then, of course, there must be shoes. We found some quite beautiful gray satin shoes, but whether they were a good fit or not we never knew. Still, Leshetitsky thought the outfit incomplete without some ornament for the hair. This we bought, as well as concert tickets. I then took the parcels with some flowers and instructed the porter to deliver them as a present from an unknown admirer with a request that she should wear them at the concert. I was sure the porter told her they were brought by a smiling young lady. Leshetitsky stood outside the hotel and was very glad to hear that this had all been accomplished so easily. That night the weather became very stormy. But Leshetitsky's pupils were in great evidence. Many of the conservatory pupils were there also, and several of the conservatory professors. Very promptly, a few minutes before the concert began, Leshetitsky was seen walking down the middle aisle and taking his seat in a conspicuous part of the hall. A very smartly gowned girl appeared on the stage, her hair dressed beautifully with an ornament placed very becomingly at the side of her head. She glanced over the audience 
smiling in rather amazed but grateful and dignified fashion in acknowledgment of the warm reception. Leshetitsky had dispersed his pupils to all parts of the room where they organized themselves into clackers for the occasion. However, there was too small an audience, owing partly to the bad weather, and Leshetitsky thought this a great misfortune, as from first to last her playing was of a style remarkably beautiful, and should have been heard by a crowded house and by the best critics of Vienna. We went to the artist's room to see her afterward. Leshetitsky was the first to go forward and speak to her. He congratulated her on her splendid piano playing, and remarked that she looked very charming. "'Yes,' she replied, "'there has been a fairy godmother to me in Vienna. They told me that Vienna was an enchanted spot, and I believe it is. If only I could find my fairy godmother,' she said, looking around. This incident Leshetitsky loved, and he enjoyed asking people if they knew what she meant when she said she had found a fairy godmother in Vienna. "'I think she meant that the dress she wore was given her,' he remarked. "'It would be very much like some of the charming Viennese or Polish or Russian ladies here to buy her that beautiful Viennese dress. They often do such things here,' he declared." Many of my pupils know this, and know of their kindness, and their interest in things artistic. No stranger suffers for lack of attention in Vienna if he really deserves it, and, he couldn't help adding, especially when that stranger happens to be so good-looking and agreeable a young lady.'